Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy, but you know what is? Going to Aruba. All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip at aruba.com. This is the Kincaid and Breckenridge Highlights Show podcast, uh, which you can download on iTunes, which maybe you've already done. Anyway, I'm Roger. That's Rob. Today on the program, we talked about assisted suicide because we found out that a Calgary woman uh, won a court uh, a court ruling that said she was allowed to uh, seek the assistance of a physician to end her life. She suffered from ALS. We also spoke with our good buddy Charles Adler, talked about the uh, Super Tuesday primary results uh, in the United States and whether Donald Trump, uh, the candidacy of Donald Trump anyway, is uh, is now inevitable. You can listen to Kincaid and Breckenridge Monday to Friday, 930 to 1230 on News Talk 770. I'm Roger. That's Rob. Uh, this is a, a conversation that we've had in depth on this program with many, many different sides. But we are going to talk about assisted uh, doctor assisted dying, assisted suicide. Uh, however you choose to phrase it, um, because the story has taken yet another turn. Now, we, we spoke about this prior to the Supreme Court decision with uh, Stephen Fletcher, the conservative MP. We've spoken uh, uh, to Dying with Dignity about this. We've spoken to the uh, the Coalition uh, Against Euthanasia. Rob, I forget the exact Yeah, the Euthanasia the Prevention, Prevention Coalition. Right. And this all concerns the... Uh, criminal Code Prohibition on Assisted Suicide in the landmark uh, Carter versus Canada case that essentially struck down the law. The government was given a year. Uh, the previous conservative government, it didn't seem as though they were eager to deal with it. It got handed off to the liberals. The liberals asked for more time. They got a four-month extension on rewriting the laws. So just last week, it was the Special Joint Committee on Physician-Assisted Dying that released its report. Uh, now they've got a, a, a committee of MPs that are going to try to incorporate this in, into legislation. So this is going to be legal at some point, but it's not yet. And so that's why this development in, involving a Calgary woman is intriguing. Uh, this woman is terminally ill, suffers from, from ALS. Uh, we cannot identify her. There's a publication ban on her name for, for whatever reason. Uh, but she was granted uh, what is essentially a constitutional exemption where she could obtain Legally, uh, legal assisted suicide uh, went to to Vancouver. Uh, there were two doctors at, at UBC who, who helped bring about an, an end to this woman's life. One of them saying, "Quote: My colleague and I were grateful and honored to be able to help her." Now, fair enough, but not all doctors are going to feel the same. Let's uh, bring this uh, this conversation to Dr. Cindy Forbes, president of the Canadian Medical Association of Family Physicians, as well. Dr. Forbes, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Oh, my pleasure. So this does take an interesting twist, and uh, the, the uh, CMA, I think, has been in probably a relatively constant dialogue on this matter uh, since the Supreme Court decision, because it does put doctors in the, uh, some I would say, uncomfortable position of, of having to deal with this task firsthand. Well, yes, uh, we've certainly been working on this uh, issue long before the Supreme Court ruling and been very involved. We were uh, considered an intervener in the original uh Ruling and uh, and were able to present to the uh, joint parliamentary committee uh, before their deli- their uh, report came out uh, just a few weeks ago. Well, and it's interesting because the CMA 
has had to evolve its position on this and I suppose recognize the reality of, of the Supreme Court decision. So how would you say that the CMA has evolved on this and, and attempted to be pragmatic? Well, exactly. Um, I mean, the, once the Supreme Court ruling had um, had come out, the Carter ruling initially, which was February 2015, we really felt that um, the best role we could play would be to make sure that this uh, allows patients to have access, that uh, vulnerable patients are protected, and that uh, physicians can follow their conscience. Um, and as you know, the medical profession uh, also have different opinions on the issue, the same as the public do. Uh, and so we've taken the role as uh, making sure that um, that the safeguards in, are in place and that uh, we, can, we can also assist patients uh, in the process of accessing the service. Right. I mean, there are... There are... Probably a number of of examples where physicians uh, would encounter ethical dilemmas in terms of dealing, you know, uh, helping or serving patients. Uh, abortion is one that obviously comes to mind, but but it's not as though this country makes every doctor have to perform abortions. Well, exactly, and and the Supreme Court ruling uh, does not uh, compel physicians to provide the service, and the uh, report from the parliamentary committee uh, affirms that that. Physicians will not be compelled to provide the service, but there's certainly controversy about the uh, element where they are uh, requiring physicians to make a direct referral to someone who will provide the service. So that is definitely an area of contention. Okay. Um, Well, let's focus on that for just a second now, Uh, because I've never been fully clear on what the referral means. If I was a physician and I was just absolutely 100% opposed to doctor-assisted suicide, would there still be an obligation for me to tell you if you came into my practice who you could talk to? Absolutely. So physicians have many uh, positive responsibilities. Uh, First of all, they have the responsibility to advise patients that that is one of their options. Uh, Along with the discussion about all of the options, including palliative care and pain management and all of the other options that might be available to them. Um, But at the same time, they also have a duty not to abandon patients and to transfer patients to another physician at the patient's request. So um, clearly, they also have the responsibility to advise them as to how they can access the service. So physicians have many responsibilities, but we're just um, supporting physicians who feel that they're, that uh, referring directly referring a patient to a physician who who will provide assistance in dying is uh, to them equal in um, equally immoral as providing the service. All right. Well, if if this is a, a right, if this is recognized as a right that Canadians have under certain circumstances and conditions, do do you fear that it puts doctors in in a position where they they may be forced to go against their their conscience, against their beliefs? Well, that's certainly the concern, and we've really felt that it shouldn't be um, a choice. This isn't something that uh, has to be an either or situation. One of the uh, suggestions that we've had all along and recommendations coming from the uh, Canadian Medical Association is that there be some um, central coordinating mechanism that would assist patients and physicians to know who will provide the service. So for instance, um, if your family physician is is not willing to to assist you in dying, but they will, they're certainly willing to refer you. How will they know who to refer to? Um, you know, those systems aren't in place. 
and uh, and there will be some likely some confusion uh, initially as to how this is going to work. Well, yeah, Sorry. I mean, no, I just wanted to throw this in because someone had texted to, to point this out. I mean, we, we've had legal abortion in, in Canada for some time, and it does seem as though we've managed to, to sort all this out, where we recognize the, the conscience and beliefs of doctors, and and we, we have a basis for that. It, does, it, does it apply here? Well, it, it is similar, and uh, the other point I would like to make is that um, there, in any of the other jurisdictions in the world where they have had assisted dying for some time, there no one uh, is compelling physicians to make a direct referral. So it, it, it really isn't necessary, and, and that's why we feel that uh, we will still be um, expressing that view uh, you know, during the time that the legislation is being drafted. Yeah, one of the things that was suggested by this uh, federal government is that you know this assisted assisted dying should be available should be widely available. So there comes this question of access and w- w- what should uh, the CMA do or what should doctors do to ensure that that it is available nationwide? Well, exactly what I was just talking about. Uh, we would be happy to work with the governments to establish mechanisms that would help match patients, you know, with um, physicians who will provide the service, or at least a, a central area for finding information uh, so that it isn't difficult for a patient who is obviously quite vulnerable at this time in their life um, seeking assisted dying uh, to simplify the process. So uh, we really feel that that's, that's quite possible, and those types of mechanisms do exist in other countries. Right. I think Canada is unique in this respect just because of the size of the landmass and the fact that we might have difficulty accessing a physician, let alone all the services that physicians could could provide in certain communities. But, I mean, in this case, and granted it's early days and we don't have the law in the books yet, we do have a, a Calgary patient who traveled to a different city in order to have this wish fulfilled. Yes, and that, you know, that could be reflective of the fact that um, it is early days and many physicians haven't been trained. You know, the educational programs are not in place. We are, uh, as an organization, we are creating educational programs for physicians. So uh, it is something that you would need to, you know, know exactly what you're doing and make sure that you are qualified, uh, as in any procedure in medicine. So that that could be a, an issue, along with the fact that perhaps uh, it isn't well known to the physicians in the area who is willing to provide the service yet. As I mentioned, uh, right. you know, it's early days. Well, it is, and I mean, it's going to take time to to adjust to this new reality. But as you know, no, obviously, the the government's on a court-imposed deadline, so. Uh, this is this is happening quickly uh, out of necessity. Well, it is. I mean, June the third is the deadline, uh, and uh, I would still expect, even uh, with legislation in place, it will still take time for physicians, you know, on the front lines, to understand what's expected of them and how they will assist their patients. It is something brand new, and none of us have been trained in medical school. This is something we are all going to have to learn about, and. Uh, and we want to, you know, to provide access, but again, we also want to make sure physicians can follow their conscience. Yeah, but, yeah. I mean, that's obviously paramount. So, to what extent should the CMA have input into what these laws look like? Then, I, I imagine you are consulting with government on this. We have been all along yeah. um, over the last, you know, certainly since the Carter decision, uh, we presented to the federal panel and to the, uh, there was a provincial territorial panel, and uh, we have ongoing daily discussions, uh, you know, on this topic with uh, politicians and physicians and the public.
All right. Well, we'll uh, continue to have this conversation going forward here, Dr. Forbes. Thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Yes, thank you. All right. That is uh, Dr. Cindy Forbes, president of the Canadian Medical Association, a family physician herself, uh, outlining the CMA's position here. I mean, the CMA was, was for a long time just outright against making this change, and I think they've had to recognize the reality that this change is coming. Uh, the doctors need to have a voice. Doctors' interests need to be at the table, and, and that's what they've attempted to do here. We'll have to wait and see what the legislation looks like, but I think that that report last week gave us some indication. Right. Uh, we'll take a pause here. We want to hear from you on this topic. It's obviously contentious and uncomfortable for many people, but, um, you know, it's it's hurtling towards us. This is a change that is coming to Canada. Uh, we have a, a poll up on our website at Newstalk770.com. We invite you to take that there. Uh, discuss it on our Facebook page as well, facebook.com slash Newstalk770Calgary, or on the phones with us right now, 974-8255. You're listening to Kincaid and Breckenridge on Newstalk 770. Welcome back. Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770, talking about uh, doctor-assisted suicide. And uh, the case of this this Calgary woman who won a a, uh, court-ordered constitutional exemption to have physicians help her end her life. That uh, she's suffering from ALS. It's terminal. She wants to go out on her own terms. Doesn't want to get to a point where, you know, she's, she's choking to death. Because of this illness, she says, I do not wish to have continued suffering. She would rather die on her own terms, die peacefully, and a judge granted her that. So that was necessary, obviously, because the law has not yet been changed. But to look at a case like this, and, and you know, these are one of those those ideal kind of cases that it's, to me anyway, it's really hard to argue against this, that somehow this, this woman should have been denied that, that she should have to die that way. Why? Yeah, I can't get there myself. And there's a few things that confuse me about it. And one is, you know, just before we went into the break, Rob, you mentioned that the CMA, you know, they used to be set against this, right? And they, they would, they just would, could not possibly under any circumstances endorse doctor-assisted suicide. To which I said, well, that in no way, shape, or form means that there was 100% uh, support of that position within the CMA. And surely, you know, when the CMA had their meetings, uh, and we were, we were discussing this, I think, like, maybe last time or even the time before that, that we talked about this very issue on this show, Rob, we heard doctors of opposing perspectives, you know, stepping up to the microphone, speaking to the room, some saying that I took a Hippocratic oath to do no harm. How can I kill? And then the, the very next person who would come up to engage the room would say, uh, how can you say you're doing no harm if you are allowing someone to suffer uh, from an incurable terminal illness? And so there was obvi- obviously always uh, differing perspectives on the matter. So why then one umbrella organization, one umbrella uh, medical association that that instructs the government this is how it'll be or has the prevailing theory on the matter? Well, you know, I guess in, in short, why couldn't a doctor branch out on his own and say, I'm willing to do this? A Jack Kevorkian type, right? Well, it didn't need to be that way. I mean, uh, this, this goes back a long time. And I mean, the Supreme Court dealt with this once before. I believe that was the Sue Rodriguez case. Yeah. And uh, the Supreme Court, I mean, part of the reason why is that, the, you know, the Supreme Court had made some assumptions uh, about what might happen uh, were to be allowed. And now there's, there was additional evidence available from the experience elsewhere, in particular in, in Oregon and in the United States, that, well, okay, those those things we worried about, the, the evidence is telling us otherwise. And uh, so the Supreme Court was able to take a fresh look at it. Now, I, I think some of the, the concerns that people have going forward now, in, in light of this report that came forward last week, um, should this be available to, to uh, minors, for example? 
or should this be available to people who are not necessarily terminal or suffering, right? Where, where do we draw that line? Can you ask for assisted suicide if you just received a diagnosis of ALS as opposed to someone who's been suffering through ALS, right? Where, where's that line? How far along do you have to be uh, before you can make that, that request? And, and so these are the things we're going to have to sort out. And I, there are probably no easy answers. I, I think some of these concerns are legitimate. Oh, yeah, 100% legitimate. This texter texts in to say, all my fears on this topic center around ease of access. Can depressed people choose to end it all? Why not? They have an illness they no longer wish to live with. What about somebody with autism? So on it goes. And, and on the depression piece, um, let me speak to that from some personal experience. I think that if you allow for this to happen, if you make um, the, the doctor's office a pathway to this ultimate end, um, then you open up wa- far more doors for treatment. And uh, I guess I could call this the inside effect, right? If you give people a nurse-supervised place to do heroin, then you're exposing them to all sorts of pamphlets and brochures and a healthcare network that says we can help you combat this addiction. If all you give them is the alley, then you're, you're increasing their likelihood of developing some sort of a bloodborne illness or just dying of an overdose in a puddle. Um, so if I were somebody who wanted to end my life and my choices were a messy crime scene or go talk to a doctor, in only one of those places would somebody say to me, by the way, this is totally treatable and I can get you the help that you want, a solution that means you can live a fulfilling life, as opposed to something terrible for a loved one to come home to. Right. So there's that benefit to it. I'm mm-hmm. just, I mean, that, that addresses that specific text. Let's go to the phones here. Some time for your calls. Uh, Howie is called in. Howie, uh, thanks for phoning in. How are you doing? Thanks for taking my call. Um, I'm just, I'm just wondering, uh, I think the, the, the best way to deal with it is you, the people you pull should be terminally ill people. I don't know why we'd be taking, uh, listening to somebody's opinion, like myself, who's personally, he- per- perfectly healthy. Why would you want my opinion on the subject? It's, it's useless. It's, it's, uh, it's not, it's not accurate. So, you know, if you're, if you're terminally ill, you would have a point of view. You would, you would get actual feedback on this, on the situation. I don't, I don't understand why you'd listen, whether they're a doctor or not. If you're perfectly healthy, your opinion doesn't matter because it's not accurate. Now, I get your point there, Howie, but we, I mean, in a democracy, we can't disqualify uh, people for, you know, say some are more equal than others, that you have to be terminally ill to have an opinion on this matter. But at the same time, I, I feel what you're saying. Why uh, Why does my opinion uh, uh, count as much as this lady's opinion does who decided to, to end her life? She was suffering with ALS. Like, if well, you the, re- the reality... Yeah, so you're right. if you want to get down to the reality, you talk to the people who are living it, not the people who are dreaming about it. Exactly. I mean, do you want do you want accurate feedback, or do you just want my opinion? I mean, what do you after? Yeah. Well, yeah, oh, okay, but, but Howie, let me ask you, when you, when yeah. you talk about people who are, are healthy, or we talk about people who are terminal, um, you know, what about, and, we, we, you know, Roger mentioned Stephen Fletcher, who we interviewed, and he's got some really strong opinions on this, because he's, uh, I believe, quadriplegic. Uh, so someone who's, who's suffering, someone who's not necessarily terminal, someone who's not necessarily going to die from their condition, uh, but someone who's in constant pain and someone who's unable to, to take care of themselves, someone in that kind of a situation that they don't want to continue in that situation and, and to deal with the daily suffering, 
does that count as unhealthy? I think what matters is quality of life, the people around the people that are terminally ill, what they go through. Um, I'm a contractor. I built a wheelchair ramp for a gentleman that had ALS. I watched what his family go through in the, over the course of a week and a half. I couldn't, I, I couldn't fathom going through that myself with anybody that I love. And it changes your attitude towards things. And the problem is not enough people actually see what these people go through. And by saying that, well, there's a place where you can go and you can get help. Well, it's not help if I'm never going to get better. It's called prolonging the inevitable. Right. That's not help. Thanks for the call, Howie. Uh, much appreciated. Yeah, you know, Howie talks about it from a from a, a first, or if not first, a secondhand perspective. But but it's true. There's there's people who approach this very theoretically, as admittedly I do. Um, but then there's people who approach it very pragmatically, who had a loved one suffering from an incurable illness, and they tell a very different story. So, well, you know, and not everybody in that situation is is going to want out, and and you know, we had a family member recently go through that, and and you know, suffer f- through a horrible cancer, um, but wanted to fight through it, and and ultimately uh, succumb to the illness, but but didn't want to and wanted to to just keep fighting and and keep having that time with with loved ones, and so yeah, I, I don't know what would be going through my mind in that kind of a situation. Maybe I'd want. To keep fighting. Maybe every day I still had, you know, with loved ones would matter. Or maybe it would get to a point where it's just unbearable and you don't want anymore and you just, you want it to end. I don't, I don't know. I can't put myself in that situation and I don't know what I would, would want. And I mean, we shouldn't presume to know what people would want in that situation, but I, I do think we should respect those wishes. Yeah. At the very least, I know that I would want the choice. Um, but that's just me, Roger. You've weighed in on this on our website at Newstalk770.com. The question uh, on the poll is, should doctors uh, should doctor-assisted suicide be available to Canadians under any circumstances? And 75% said yes, the right to die should be left to the individual in certain cases. 25% say no, there are a number of moral and ethical reasons that assisted suicide should be illegal. This is a conversation that will uh, continue on this radio station throughout the day today, and we invite you to go to Newstalk770.com to uh, uh, take part in that uh unscientific survey right there as well yeah a lot of comments uh, on facebook as well and i mean clearly this issue is not going away following the 10:30 news we're going to uh, shift gears we're going to talk about politics south of the border it was super tuesday yesterday uh, a number of states i think it was 12 uh, on the republican side i don't know i don't know if it's a different number on the democratic side maybe it was 11 democratic states voting 12 on the republican side uh, but another big night for donald trump and is the trump candidacy or dare i say is the trump presidency Inevitable. Our friend Charles Adler is going to join us in a few minutes. Uh, we'll get into that. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. Well, I've been uh, transfixed all morning by the, uh, the the shot, the zooming in on the face of Chris Christie with the Curb Your Enthusiasm <laughs> music in the background. It was a real surreal sight as Donald Trump was sort of giving his Super Tuesday victory speech last night. And there's Chris Christie made the curious decision to to endorse Donald Trump just standing there. And looking as though he was trying to figure out a way to to escape. Is there some kind of New Jersey, New York thing happening there, by the way? Yeah, it could be. Because I, I, I feel like maybe those two guys speak the same language a little bit, a little bit. But I, I don't know. I, I mean, I would get that there's a gulf between uh, Trump and, and Cruz and Trump and Rubio. 
But I think that Christie, of all the candidates, once he stepped out of the race, the one he might understand the most is, is, a, is a New Yorker, a Northeaster. A well, nor- Nor'easter. Well, there seem to be a lot of Republicans who might previously not have given Donald Trump the time of day, kind of coming to grips with the idea of Trump as, as their candidate. And uh, look, I mean, he won seven states last night. He had a very good night. Um, I, I think with some, some nuances in how some states do things, he didn't run away with it. I think Cruz and Rubio combined finished with about the same amount of delegates last night as, as Trump did. But still, I mean, who's going to stop him? Uh, Rubio won, what, one state, Minnesota, last night? I think so, yeah. Cruz won three? Yeah, it might have won three, perhaps. Yeah, Alaska, Oklahoma, and then his, his home state, state of Texas. So uh, does that mean that uh, everyone should drop out and get behind Ted Cruz? Because I think there's certainly differences between Cruz and Rubio and Cruz and a lot of Republicans. And Cruz versus Trump might be, um, you know, I think there was one more establishment Republican who said it was a choice of being shot or poisoned between (laughs) Cruz and Trump. So here's what I posit to you then is that um, the, the, the corner is being turned in slow motion and it's now being turned to, it's not going to be either Rubio or Cruz. It'll be Bloomberg. We'll concede that Trump has (laughs) won these contests and then we will put somebody else in, into that program. Let's bring uh, our buddy Charles Adler into the conversation now. Charles, welcome back to the show. Well, it's a, it's a great day for a lot of people, but obviously not great for Chris Christie. As a matter of fact, I think uh, Trump may fire him, because my, my guess is that Melania, who sees herself as the next uh, first lady, uh, Melania Trump is uh, Donald Trump's only real advisor and the only one he actually pays attention to. And, you know, she cares about pictures. I mean, she understands uh, TV, understands uh, image. And she has to understand that it really doesn't look good for her husband to have a guy behind him who looks like, I guess, at one time he felt like the CEO of a, of a real state. And now he feels like Donald Trump's janitor or Donald <laughs> Trump's dog or, right. or Donald Trump's something. But, but certainly the, the image of Christie looking sad and forlorn uh, while uh, Trump is uh, doing a victory thing just is, 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 is funny television. Uh, but I just don't imagine that the, uh, Trump will be looking at that the morning after, and he looks at everything. I just can't imagine how uh, Christie will be kept there as the as the doorstop or doormat or the dog or you know whatever it is the Trump family wants him to do for them. You know what it does prove, though, Charles, is that Chris Christie could be that great like Republican Speaker of the House if Hillary's the president? Because you know that a big part of that job is sitting behind the president of the State of the Union and just looking so disappointed in absolutely every word. (laughs) (laughs) Well, remember, I mean, that's what... uh... That's what the guy from Wisconsin uh, looked like, uh, you know, Mr. Yeah. Paul, who who ran for, for vice president, and uh, Paul did uh, sit there, uh, Paul Ryan, and he also had very much the same look that Chris Christie. Yeah. Well, but would you agree or disagree? I mean, it's probably not the most important issue in the world, but if you're if you're running the Trump campaign, or if you're Donald or, or Melania, aren't you saying, i, I got to find a way of taking Chris Christie out of the picture, because this doesn't look like a victory speech when the guy behind you looks like he's attending a funeral. No, it was weird. I don't. I don't know what 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 kind of value they think they're getting from from Christie's presence or Christie's endorsement. But uh, no, yeah, I mean, it just provides an additional narrative to the night. Well, let me put this one to you guys both because this is how I think Trump spins it: is he can come out today and say, 
Listen to listen to those media. Listen to Charles Adler saying that Chris Christie looks terrible and they should fire him. That that's the media, the mainstream media telling all of you that it's unacceptable to stand behind me and they'll spin whatever story they want. I think Trump could just use this to to escalate that position about don't listen to them, don't listen to them. Everything's fine. We've got this one. Well, no, he he beats that drum every day, and yeah. uh, you know I, it's impossible for any of us to be truly objective. I mean, obviously, we're in the media business, and we do find it hard to believe uh, that there are millions and millions of rubes out there who think that Donald Trump doesn't love the media, who think that Donald Trump doesn't understand that the, the media is what made him. He's a media invention. Uh, he's a media icon, and it, without the media, there is no Donald Trump. Now, maybe there are millions of people who truly think that Donald Trump goes to sleep at night thinking that media is his enemy. But frankly, you've got to be awfully uninformed to think that the media is anything but Donald Trump's best friend. No, and we, we had some fun with that last Friday as we were watching uh, that, that news conference with the, the endorsement. And then just Trump kept talking and CNN just couldn't look away. And it was uh, over 90 minutes. that They stayed with it nonstop. And, uh, you know, he just he gobbles up the spotlight. And he's that, that's worked really well for him. Well, look, I, I worked uh, the U.S. Uh, media when I was based in a number of places, but I remember my Boston experience because that's when uh, the O.J. Simpson trial was on. And so I had a, an evening show, 8 o'clock until 9, uh, you know, primetime show and all of that. And uh, like anybody else, I mean, I was interested in O.J., but I wasn't obsessed, and I wanted to do other topics. And the executive producer of the program said, and, you know, we, we took the ratings, had the ratings, the so-called sweeps every single night, the so-called overnights. And uh, the the executive producer told me, Chuck, no problem. We'll move off OJ. We, we, we'll do other stuff uh, as long as when we try other stuff, we can get the same numbers that we get with OJ. And it wasn't possible. Even when we had huge local crime stories, you know, breaking news, blah, 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 blah. Nothing got the numbers for us and for everyone else that OJ got. So we just kept the camera on OJ. And so at the moment, Donald Trump is, you know, the OJ story. It doesn't matter that it's not about a homicide. It's irrelevant. That's where the eyeballs are. And as long as Donald Trump keeps the eyeballs tuned to CNN, Fox, MSNBC, what have you, uh, they're going to stay with the Trump story. So what does this tell us, though? I mean, if, let's look back on this 50 years from now, right? This this tiny epoch that, that overlapped 2015 and 16 in American politics, because to me, it, it looks like a tantrum. I watched that John Oliver uh, takedown on, on Donald Trump, and, and it I thought it was, you know, pretty legitimate and fair. Obviously, it had a, a point to, to try to make. But it, it did highlight the fact that, look, there's a lot of Americans that are fed up with something, the Republican establishment doesn't seem to be addressing the matter. And then you've got all these people who say we're conservative voters and we're willing to back this guy. It's as though the, the American right is having a tantrum right now. Well, you know, the crazy thing about America is uh, because America hasn't been through, you know, real fascism. I'm talking about the Mussolini's and the, the Hitler's. They haven't had a Pol Pot. You know, when they hear those kinds of uh, comparisons, they just don't buy it because on the one hand, they want someone to go in there and, and basically kick the furniture around in Washington, and they know that Donald Trump is a guy who isn't shy about walking in and, and kicking the furniture around. And when people say, but you, you've got to be frightened of a guy like this because he really is an American fascist, people believe that their system with the checks and balances are strong enough 
to prevent Donald Trump's worst instincts uh, from playing a role. And so the, the, the character of him, as, 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 like I say, as a, a modern-day Mussolini or whatever, I mean, it's interesting TV, but the average voter really isn't afraid, the average voter, especially the ones who are voting for him, they're not afraid uh, that, that he is going to be kicking their doors down and taking their kids away. Well, yeah, and he's not exactly running away with this. Uh, you know, I mean, if, if there were just one candidate opposing him, it might be a pretty close race. And there, there seems to be this, this groundswell, this hashtag never Trump, that a lot of conservatives and Republicans are saying, look, this, this guy's going to destroy our party. This guy's going to undo all the work we've tried to do over the last five or ten years. It's going to be a disaster for us. Um, so he's, it, you know, it's certainly not a case of him running away with this. I think one of the things the conservatives are afraid of, let's face it, everyone talks uh, their book, everyone talks about uh, the things that are in their interest. Uh, Donald Trump isn't beholden to the the National Review uh, folks or the Weekly Standard or any of the the standard-bred conservative uh, soothsayers. Uh, You know, the the think tanks that they have, uh, Heritage, American Enterprise, uh, all of us who who pay attention to these things, we know who they are. Uh, Donald Trump isn't owned by them. Uh, Donald Trump doesn't care about them. And as far as uh, an objective observer, is concerned and trying to be as objective about this as possible. I think what they're worried about is that the Republican Party will be uh, a little bit larger and uh, not as beholden to the conservative movement. It won't automatically be a conservative party. I mean, what Donald Trump is actually doing, based on the amount of new people who are going to the polls, because it is, as he would say, huge, huge, it is. I mean, you know, they're blowing away the Democrats in terms of uh, the numbers of people who are actually voting in primary and caucuses. And so I think what some of these conservatives are afraid of is, is the tent is going to get larger and it's not going to be dominated as much by conservatives. Uh, they are definitely, there's no question about it, they say that it's the end of the Republican Party. It is not the end of the Republican Party, but it could be the end of the conservative control of the Republican Party. Right. Charles, you know the drill. We've got to take a quick break here, but uh, maybe we'll bring the Democrats uh, into this conversation when we come back. Uh, we are talking to our good buddy Charles Adler. You listen to him on Sirius XM Satellite Radio, uh, Canada Talks, Channel 167. We'll continue this chat after a quick break. It's News Talk 770. CharlesAdler.com is the website. Charles Adler is the man, and he's on the line with us uh, talking about uh, yesterday's Super Tuesday results. It was also a good night for Hillary Clinton. Charles, it's such an interesting dichotomy to me because I, I, you know, a lot of Trump supporters seem to say, look, we, you know, we got to stop Hillary. Forget worrying about Donald Trump. We got to stop Hillary. That when you put the Republicans up against Hillary, Trump does the worst. He, he does the worst right now, but. Uh... Look, it, it's March, and November is, in terms of news cycles, I mean, it's, it, it feels like thousands of news cycles away. So so who knows? One thing we do know is that Donald Trump doesn't play defense at all. Uh, he only <laughs> plays offense. And he is going to be offending and offensive to Hillary every single day. And there are Democrats who worry about that, who worry that even though much of what Donald Trump is saying about Hillary might not be true, might not even be, you know, 75% true, it may be 5% true, true enough to keep the conversation going. And if if he can get Hillary uh, to play defense, then all bets are off. One thing is for certain, uh, Donald Trump is a populist, he's not a liberal, 
he's not a conservative. And the best example I could offer you is Ralph Klein. I mean, when Ralph Klein, forget what it was like in the waning years, because every, every movement has its peaks and its valleys. But when, when Ralph Klein was peaking, he was as popular with rich folk as poor folk, and you could go right down the line. He wasn't really a conservative or a liberal. It doesn't matter that he was head of the, uh, nominally the head of a, a, a party calling itself conservative. He was a populist, and Donald Trump has that same sort of appeal. So if you're a strategist, uh, he's dangerous because you have no idea where he's going to be popping up and being popular. He's as popular uh, with people who haven't worked in 10 years as he is with people who are CEOs. You just don't know what Donald Trump, and when you're talking about a guy who is a populist, that's dangerous to a traditional strategist. Remember, in this campaign, uh, on the Republican side, all of the rules have been thrown out. How often in, in your lifetime have you seen a person who's positioned as a conservative as vulgar as Donald Trump. I mean, whether he's making fun of women, whether he's making fun of disabled people, war heroes, you name it. That's not a conservative. He's not a conservative. He's dangerous. So the, the, the interesting thing to me about the whole Super Tuesday wave yesterday and, and this Trump pandemonium, trump what are we calling it? But anyway, it kind of covers the, the Democrats a little bit. I mean, we, we talk about Hillary and Bernie, and I think that we're kind of doing that just to be what, give, like, equal coverage? But, but, like, no one knows the stories about Hillary. I mean, there's the whole Benghazi thing, there's the emails, but, but uh, look, Trump's on the other TV. Let's watch that. Well, you know, the, 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 here's the problem with the uh, email story. Um, the, the problem with the email story is, as my old grammar school uh, teacher used to constantly, sternly remind me, you know, you have to have an object for the predicate. Okay, so what, what's, what's the object here? The, the object here is that somehow what she was doing uh, was a security threat. Okay, so what's the predicate of that? Well, the predicate of that is that somebody got killed. Somebody got compromised. Something terrible happened to an American or something terrible happened to America. Well, no one has been able to, to, to show that. No one has been able to really position Hillary Clinton as someone who's, you know, leaking the atomic bomb to the Soviet <laughs> Union. You know, she's not uh, Rosenberg from the 1940s and 50s. Uh, you, you can't do that with her. So it, you basically hit the wall. And for a lot of people who don't want Trump or don't want the Republicans or do like Hillary, all of this email stuff by November will just be tedious nonsense. Yeah, I agree with that. And plus, who hasn't used their personal email at work? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and that's what I think makes people, people who are opposed to Donald Trump, right, people who don't want to see him president, that's what makes them nervous. Because on, on the surface, Hillary should, should be able to beat Donald Trump. Then at a general election, I, I think Trump brings too much baggage. But all of a sudden, Hillary gets snagged in some, some controversy. And if, you know, if that's all that's standing in the way of Donald Trump becoming president, it, he's awfully close to, to the White House. You know, when, when it comes to uh, looking at a great cop or a, a Super Bowl or any major athletic contest, you know, we always have the discussion about uh, the stats, okay? According to the stats, you know, this team has, you know, this quarterback who's done this and this running back who's done that. And so according to the stats, this team has got to win this game. As a matter of fact, this team will have trouble not running up the score. And then, of course, the game gets played. And everything can change. And so I would say that, look, if this is a, a resume contest, you know, just the stats, Hillary versus Donald Trump, it's absolutely no contest. I mean, <laughs> she is a professional 
and, and, and that's all there is to it. When it comes to politics, Donald Trump is rank amateur. So, fine. Um, you can go with, um, it'll be a resume contest in November, and Hillary will win a landslide. The problem is, uh, it's not a resume contest, no different than football or hockey. It is a blood sport, and you just don't know until the game's actually being played. Bloodsport, my favorite Jean-Claude Van Damme film, by the way. Yes. So how bad, is, how bad is a Donald Trump presidency? And I ask the question in this context. How, how frightening is it? Because when Obama won, I was told that we were going to get this Obamagration wave where all these Republicans, these conservative Americans are going to move to Canada. <laughs> right? Now I find out that with Trump leading in polls, we've got, like, people are Googling how to move to Canada. So how, how dangerous. Build a wall. Well, I was having uh, some fun with that guy earlier today I was uh, suggesting that uh, based on uh, the Google uh, map and uh, based on uh, all the Google clicks uh, about uh, Canada coming from Americans last night, that uh, Donald Trump uh, might want to build a wall, you know, to, yeah. to keep all the Americans in America. Uh, but, you know, that, that's not happening. And uh, when, when Americans say that they're going to leave the United States, it's just something that they say in the moment. Uh, they've said it before. Uh, you know, I remember Americans saying that during Watergate, you know. Uh, so it's just, it's just something they say. When you ask me how scary Donald Trump is, fortunately, there's something in America called the Supreme Court. And there are checks and balances. And the, the way it works in their system, it's not like our system of the so-called whipped caucus. If Republicans in Congress feel it is not in their interest, either for fundraising or for re-election, to obey, to go along with Donald Trump. They won't. Uh, Democrats, uh, it's very unlikely that many of them will go along with, with much of what he says. So the chances are Donald Trump will go into deal mode. He's the author of The Art of the Deal. Mm -hmm. If he wants certain bills to succeed... He will compromise. Now, compromise is a dirty word with uh, people on the far left and the far right, but it's entirely possible. And I'm not, I'm not a Donald Trump supporter at all. I'm, I'm not part of the bandwagon. But it's entirely possible that he will uh, switch to dealmaker mode in order to get some deals and actually come across for a while as a person who's far less frightening uh, than he's being portrayed as. As far as the, the business of uh, deporting uh, between 10 and 15 million people he is going to find a way to walk that cat back uh, if he's president almost as soon as he is sworn in. Because that's the one thing that he's talked about that could blow up America. Now, you, you try uh, raiding people's homes and tearing them away from their, their kids. Uh, you will have violence. You will have chaos. And you will have situations where federal authorities refuse to obey the law. It just won't happen. It's no different than armies in various countries that refuse to shoot uh, the citizens. You know, sometimes that'll happen. And you had a situation in, in just the last few days where you had the former director of the CIA, who is a, a, a decorated officer, a general, and he said that if Donald Trump's rhetoric were to actually become policy instructions during a Trump administration, the military would refuse to follow some of those orders because the military around the world is under orders to be lawful. And some of the things that Donald Trump talks about are not lawful. Yeah. So I think that Donald Trump being a survivor would... Uh, significantly uh, turn the heat down uh, once he's a president. Even last night in the, in the first few minutes of the news conference, um, he tried to be a little more moderate, a little more uh, presidential, a little more diplomatic. And let's face it, the Donald Trump 
this is a game. And it's not a game unless he's winning. He has to show every day that, that he's winning. And if he's a president, the only way he can be winning is to get things done. All right, we got to leave it there, Chuck. CharlesAdler.com. Always enjoy the chat. Thanks so much for joining us here. You bet. Much appreciated. Charles Adler, charlesadler.com. And catch him on uh, Sirius XM Satellite Radio. Uh, we got to take a break. we got a lot more to get to uh, on today's program. This is Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770.